Our scripture passage for today comes from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus, came to Gal- <laughs> then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Good to see all of you. Would you now join me in bowing your heads as we ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you so much for all the good, bountiful gifts and blessings that you give to us. And Father, you have given us another year where once again we could witness and experience your faithful goodness and blessings upon us, not only as individuals, not only as families, but as a congregation. Lord, for these past five years, you have shown yourself to be faithful, and we give you all praise and glory. For no one in this room could ever take credit of what you alone have accomplished in the lives of the people that are in this room and the influence and impact that they will have to the people around them. And so, Father, we give you praise, glory, and honor on this anniversary Sunday, and we ask now that you would do that you would promise, that when two or more are gathered under the name of your Son, that you would come and minister to us through the means of grace of the preached word. And so, God, would you now bless us for we sit at your feet, eagerly waiting, hungrily for your word to feed our souls. Oh, God, would you bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So I was 20 years of age when I felt a conviction that God called me to be a minister. And when he did, I was convinced that I needed to go ahead and do ministry right then and there to where I was so tempted to quit school, quit my job, drop everything, and just go ahead and do ministry. Thankfully, I had a college pastor who loved me enough to slap me across the head, figuratively speaking, although he might have done it literally. He was one of those Korean college pastors. And he says, dude, You are not quitting school. You're going to stay in college. You're going to graduate. And then you're going to go to more schooling and get more education so that you can be a minister. And when I asked him why, he said to me these words that I have not forgotten to this day. He said, John, remember this. When God calls you to ministry, you must first be qualified to do that ministry. Again, he said, when God calls you to do ministry, you must first be qualified to do that ministry. And I believe that principle is universally true for everyone who calls themselves Christian. 
Now you're like, wait a minute, Pastor, back up for just a moment. I think you just misspoke. Didn't you just mean anyone who calls themselves pastor? You just said Christian as if to imply what you just said refers to me. But I'm going to tell you right now, Pastor, I ain't no minister. To which I would respond, yes, you are. Newsflash, Christian, if you consider yourself to be a genuine follower of Jesus, you are a minister. Don't forget the word minister simply means to serve. And if there is any characteristic that should be common of every believer is that they serve, they minister. Hence, every single one of you Christians in this room are a minister. And if you've been part of our church for a couple of years now, you would know that Scripture teaches us that there are five crucial core ministries that God calls every Christian to be a minister of. Number one, your personal ministry to God. Number two, your ministry to your family. Number three, your ministry to the church. Number four, your ministry to the world through your work, your occupation. And finally, your ministry to the broken, forgotten, and forsaken of society, what I call the BFFs of society. These are the five crucial ministries God calls every single Christian in this room to be a minister of. Here at our church, we affectionately refer to these ministries as METS, M-E-T-S, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. God calls every member of his body, i.e. the church, to be equipped to serve in these five crucial ministries. And today, as we celebrate our anniversary Sunday at the beginning of this new year, we're going to focus on the first and really the foundational ministry of all, and that is our personal ministry to God. But the way I want to approach this topic is to consider what qualifications are needed in order for a Christian to properly minister to God personally, because this is today's thesis sermon. The thesis of today's sermon is basically this. If a Christian wants to be qualified to minister to God personally, you must first answer the question, who am I properly? Let me say that again. If you, Christian, want to be qualified to serve your God, to minister to him personally, you must first answer the question, who am I properly? And so with that stage said, there are two things I want to share with you in today's message. First, we're going to talk about the common false answers the world gives to that question, who am I? And then we're going to end it with the only answer that properly answers the question, who am I? The common false answers the world tries to tell us is the answer to the question, who am I? And finally, the true answer to that question, who am I? Let's begin with the first point. The common false answers the world gives to that question, who am I? Now, it goes without saying. That asking and answering the question, who am I, is one of the most important, if not the most important question a person could figure out for themselves. Why? When a person does not know who they are, when they don't have their identity, when they cannot answer who am I, they will not have any sense of stability, any sense of structure as they live in the confused, chaotic world that we do. Case in point, a few years ago, the New York Times came out with a story about a Westchester lawyer who woke up one morning with amnesia. It's true. He woke up one morning completely clueless as to where he was, who he was, and who these people were around him. He just woke up in bed just completely clueless to everything. And so what does he do? He gets dressed, and he proceeds to walk, not telling anyone, and he disappears. And for six months, his family had no idea where to find him. They called the cops. They did searches. For six months, they couldn't find their husband, their dad, their uncle, their brother, their son, and so forth. Later on, they discover him where? In a homeless shelter in downtown Chicago. Westchester, New York, downtown Chicago. 
All because this man had no idea of the answer of who am I. When you don't know who you are, when you have no sense of personal identity, you have no idea what you're to do, who you're responsible for, what you're to be doing with your life. In other words, if you can't answer who am I correctly, you cannot have a truly meaningful, fulfilled life. That's the truth. Now, here's something else that's also true. This question, who am I, is one of the most difficult questions a person could attempt to answer. Why? Because you and I live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with answers that inhibit us from being able to answer that question for ourselves. Even in our passage in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, we see four common answers that the world, represented by Satan, tries to shove down our throats as the only true answers to the question, who am I? So let's consider these four common answers that happen to be very wrong. The first of which we read about in the first two verses of chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel. It goes like this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So the context of what I just read is the famous story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And why is Jesus going through this scenario? Well, remember how I said at the beginning of my message. In order for a person to be doing a ministry, they must be qualified for that ministry, right? Well, Jesus was called by his Father in heaven to fulfill the unique ministry of being the long-awaited Messiah for God's people. But before he could begin doing this ministry of the Messiah, he had to be qualified for this ministry. And so God the Father sets up this scenario where his son gets tempted by the enemy for 40 days and 40 nights to showcase and to reveal that, yes, indeed, he is qualified to do this work, this ministry known as the Messiah. Now, of course, this is something that only Jesus is capable of doing. The messianic role of God's people is unique to Christ and Christ alone. But that doesn't mean that what Jesus is going through doesn't mean that we can experience and relate to as well. Because what Jesus goes through in this temptation is a common struggle that we all have where the devil is always trying to convince us of the four lies to the answer to the question of who am I. The first lie goes like this. Who am I? I am my desires. I am my desires. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I know some of you guys in here are into that whole intermittent fasting thing. And you might be tempted to kind of downplay, minimize the impact of what Jesus is going through. You might be like, no, I think I do this too. You know, I can go for 16, day, 16 hours without eating. I think I can do 40 days, 40 nights. No, you can't. Please don't. Because if you do, I'm afraid I'm going to have to do your funeral service, all right? No one can possibly eat, right, for over, not eat for over a month and live to tell the story. What Jesus is going through is so crazy because he is depriving himself of something that we daily need in order to live. And the question is, why is Jesus doing this? What's his point? Listen to what he says in verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this is interesting because based on these words, Jesus is essentially telling us that when it comes to determining who you are, when it comes to defining who you are, your identity, do not look to your needs. Do not look to your fundamental needs because your needs, like your need to eat, your need to sleep, your need to have shelter, that is not what determines or defines you as a person. That is not your identity. Think about that. We need to eat. It is a fundamental need to where we say it's a fundamental right. And yet Jesus says, as fundamental as that is, that is not the essence of your identity. That is not who you are. Now, hold on to that thought as I raise this question to you. 
What do you think our Jesus would say to this idea, I am what I desire? The reason why I ask that is because we live in a culture that is always telling us, hey, who you really are, your true identity, is what you feel on the inside. It's what you desire. So, for example, if you desire to live out a certain gender that is contrary to your biological gender, it doesn't matter. That's who you are because that's how you desire to live out your life. Or if you desire to have a certain kind of relationship that is contrary to traditional relationships because that's how you desire, right, then you better bet that the government, that the Supreme Court, that society recognizes legitimacy and the legality of this relational setup because that's your desire. That's who you really are. That is your identity. Your identity are the things that you desire. But let me ask you, if Jesus tells us that your identity is not dictated by your needs, how much more so would he say that your identity is not determined by your desires? See, Jesus is telling us, in spite of what you may feel that you are, in spite of what you may desire, the kind of person that you think you are, in spite of what you may, you may emote in terms of the kind of identity that you want to live out, Jesus says, that ain't you. That is not your essence. That is not your true identity. Now, this is a very provocative thing for Jesus to say in our day and age. So much so to where it seems like we can't go past what Jesus is saying because this is some very serious, audacious words. But unfortunately, we do have to move on because there are other three common answers that are blatant lies that the world tries to tell us answers the question, who am I? So let's consider the second of these lies. Read again with me the second half of verse 3. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In the midst of Jesus' starvation, Satan tempts Jesus to take a bunch of stone-cold rocks and transform it into soft, warm bread. Why? Well, believe it or not, Jesus, or excuse me, Satan is trying to convince Jesus of the second common lie that our culture tells us, which is what? I am what I'm capable of. If I want to know what my identity is, look at the things that I do, what I'm capable of doing, my works, my performance, my achievements. That is who I truly am. That is my identity. So, for example, if I'm capable of doing something beautiful, that means I'm a beautiful person. If I'm capable of doing something good and decent for society, that means I'm a good and decent person. If I'm capable of better performing than my coworkers, that means I'm a better person than my coworkers. If I'm capable of making millions of dollars more than my neighbor, that means I'm a more valuable person person than my neighbor. So often we buy into this lie that the thing that dictates and determines your identity are the things that you are capable of doing, producing, achieving, and accomplishing. So if you do great, grandiose things, you're great. You're grandiose. If you do impressive, important work, that means you're impressive. You're important. You know, if I had to take a bet, as to which of these four lies that we tend to stand on when it comes to determining our identity, it's this one. I think many of us in this room define ourselves based on the things that we're capable of doing. Yeah. And I include myself in this. In fact, I probably would take the lead ahead of all of you guys because I constantly buy into the lie all the time when it comes to determining who I am, my identity, based on the things that I'm capable of. And every now and then, God has to smack me across the head to remind me of how foolish and how stupid it is for me to believe such a lie. Let me share one incident. A couple years ago, I was watching YouTube, <clears throat> and on my YouTube feed, there was a suggested video of a video snippet of the 2016 Golden Globe Awards. I have no idea to this day why that video was suggested to me because I don't even watch the Golden Globes. I could care less. But out of sheer curiosity and boredom, I clicked onto the video. 
And it was a video of Jim Carrey. Do you guys remember Jim Carrey? He's a very popular, famous comedian actor in the 90s and early 2000s, okay? And it was basically his monologue as he introduces the nominee for Best Picture Comedy for that year. Take a listen to how he begins his monologue. He says this, Good evening. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just any guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey getting some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't dream any old dream, no sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know won't ultimately fulfill me. Now here are the nominees for Best Motion Picture Comedy. Now you hear that and you're like, that's hilarious. And that's precisely the point. For anyone to take serious the notion that who you are, your identity, is dictated by what you do, what you're capable of, makes you a victim of a satanic lie. And Jesus says, don't believe it. You are not identified or determined by the things that you're capable of doing. No matter how impressive, no matter how unique, no matter how awe-inspiring it may be. Now let's consider lie number three. Read again with me verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Okay, here what's going on. After seeing Jesus refuse to buy into the two lies that Satan tempts him with to believe, he then goes attacking with the third lie. And what is that third lie? I am what important people say about me. The third most common lie people believe that determines who they are is based on what important people say about them. Look at what Satan does. He positions Jesus as a setup for this third lie by putting him where? The pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Why the temple? Why not some isolated mountaintop or maybe the edge of some steep cliff where no one else is around? Why specifically is Satan putting Jesus at the top of a very visible spot of the temple in the city of Jerusalem? Well, let's think about it. Who's gathered around the temple? The religious leaders? The political influencers of Israelite society, right? The very same people who constantly questioned, scrutinized, doubted Jesus' claim to be their Messiah, Right? And if Jesus actually obeyed Satan and jumped off the pinnacle where everyone would witness the angels coming down to supernaturally save Jesus in a location where God says in his word that he would never share his glory with another, clearly all the important people would be like, of course, yes, you are our Messiah. You are our long-awaited king. Praise be to you, right? And all of a sudden, Jesus gets the validation. He gets the affirmation of the movers and shakers of his society, the important people. And as a result, it would be because of what important people say about him, not because of who he truly is, that makes Jesus identify as the long-awaited Messiah. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Important people do not dictate or determine who I am. And guess what? That's also true of you. And I think this is something we need to hear. Because so often throughout our whole lives, we always look to the important people in our lives to determine who we are, to determine our value, our worth, our sense of identity. Oh, we start off 
with mom and dad, right? What does mom and dad think of me? If mom and dad love me, if they affirm me, if they say I can do anything and I can be anyone, surely it must be true. I am the great champion that mom and dad say I am. And then we graduate to our friends. And if our friends affirm us, if they say we're cool, if they love hanging around us, if they think that we're beautiful, if they think we're popular, then yes, that's the essence of who we are. And then we move on to our teachers. And if our teachers affirm us with good grades and good recommendations, where we get into high prestigious institutions, and then we move on to our managers, our bosses, all the important figures of our lives that affirm us. And then, of course, in this crazy social media age where all of our posts, all of our Instagram reels, all of our postings online get liked, get viral, now we're somebody, right? Now I know who I am. This is why cancel culture exists, by the way. Many people wonder, where in the world did cancel culture come from? Jesus tells us right here, it came from a satanic lie that says who you are can be dictated and determined by what important people of society say. And if these important people, corporations, celebrities, politicians, if they don't like you, if they don't affirm you, then you're done. You're out of business, sometimes literally. Cancel culture is simply a negative inversion of this demonic lie that says important people determine and dictate who I am. And Jesus says that is flat out false. Don't believe it. Now let's consider the fourth and final lie that so often the world and the devil throws at us. Read again verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So it's clear to Satan that his first three attempts to get Jesus to be deceived by the lies that he gives is not working. And so he goes for the jugular and lands with the fourth and final lie that the world is trying to convince us is true when it comes to determining our identity. And which is what? I am what I possess. I am what I own. Satan is showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all the power that it represents, and giving it to him for his own soul possession. And Jesus says, no, that is not what I'm about. That is not my identity. I am not who I am because of the things that I own. And I think this is something we need to hear as well. Because isn't this also a common lie we so tempt ourselves to believe in? We think about our portfolio. We think about our private collections. We think about the things that we own, like our car, our houses, you know, that nice little secondary home that we have as a timeshare in Hawaii. Or we think about things about ourselves, our bodies, our looks, you know, our health, or maybe the people in our lives, my wife, my children, my husband, my parents. So often we say that the thing that defines who I am and establishes my identity are the things that I have, things that I own, things that I possess. But Jesus says, don't buy into it. If you think about it, it makes total sense. Why would we put something so invaluable, something so irreplaceable like our identity on something that can be lost, something that can be taken away, something that can be destroyed? It is not worth placing our soul identity and our personhood on things that are fleeting and fading away, and yet we do it all the time. I know I do. I'll be vulnerable with you right now. I'll share with you. I go through this almost every day when I look in the mirror and I see this or I see pictures. You see this right here? You see this growing patch? When I became pastor of this church in 2009, there are pictures of me here. In 2009, this was full with rich, lush, jet black hair. It was. I have pictures. I, I saved them. 
okay? I'll send it to you if you email me. And I get so discouraged and depressed every time I'm doing this or I see pictures. By the way, whoever's taking pictures, can you not take pictures of the back of my head, please? This is a good size. This is a good profile. But when I see my hair loss, I literally feel like I'm less of who I was, right? And thank God I have a wife who says, babe, come on. Your hair or your lack of it doesn't change the fact that you have children who adore you, a wife who is so lovingly faithful to you, and a church that really trusts you as their pastor. So get over it. It's okay. And she's just simply affirming what Christ is telling us here in this passage, right? Do not look to the things that you have now or maybe lose later to determine whether or not you are who you are because that is not your identity, okay? It is not. So four things that Jesus is telling us through the temptation he endures by Satan that we are not in terms of our identity. You are not the things that you desire. You are not the things that you're capable of doing. You are not what important people say you are. And you're certainly not the things that you own or possess. So here's the question. Who are you? What determines your identity? Well, this leads me to the final point, the only answer that properly answers the question. Let's now look at the other chapter for today in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 3. We're starting in verse 13. We read, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan by, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all wrong." All righteousness. Then he, John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so this is the famous baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist at the Jordan River. And it actually comes chronologically prior to the temptation narratives that we just study. But from our vantage point, it is important for us to look at this now after we study the temptation narratives because it gives us a proper perspective of what's happening here, what's going on. Jesus is getting baptized by John. And if you know anything about John, specifically his baptism, this should come across as highly inappropriate. In fact, this is why in verse 14, John tries to stop Jesus from doing this. Like, no, 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 I'm not going to baptize you. We're not, we're not going to do this, Lord, right? Why? Because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. That is, anyone who got baptized by him was openly acknowledging that they sinned against God, they betrayed God, they rebelled against God, and now they're repenting of those sins and recommitting themselves to God by coming under the baptism of John. But here's the problem. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything to deny his commitment to God. He's been faithful to his Father in heaven, so he did not meet the qualifications to be baptized. It was unnecessary for Jesus to be baptized by John. Now, let me just do a quick tangent, quick theological tangent, okay, for you theological nerds in here, right? This unnecessariness of Jesus being baptized by John is foreshadowing the unnecessariness of Jesus being tempted by Satan. And what I mean by that is just like Jesus did not need to be baptized by John because he's never sinned. Jesus really didn't need to be tempted by sin because he never would have been able to sin in the first place. You see, there's a lot of debate going on amongst theologians of whether or not Jesus' human nature was actually capable of sinning. Scripture seems to say that just like Jesus could never have sinned to where he would have been qualified to be under baptism of John, so also his human nature was not capable of sinning to where any temptation would have been a real threat to him. Now, we're going to talk more about this in another sermon, or you can come talk to me afterwards so I can prove this uh, theological thesis to you. 
But just wanted to put that in there just in case you guys were ever wondering about that question. Human, Jesus' human nature was indeed impeccable, right? Just like his divine nature was. But let's go back to the whole baptism thing and ask this question. Why was Jesus baptized by John when he personally did not need to come under the baptism? The answer? To show us the only true answer to the question, who am I? When Jesus gets baptized by John, okay, he is expanding our understanding of baptism to be more than someone repenting of their sins. By coming under the baptism of John, Jesus is showing us what the true essence of baptism is. And what is the true essence of baptism? Consider this quote from theologian Edmund Clowney. He says this, quote, Christian baptism is a naming ceremony. The baptized person is given a name, the name of the triune God. Baptism gives Christians their family name, the name they bear as those called the children of God, end quote. In other words, baptism is a naming ceremony. First and foremost, it's when the person baptized gets God's family name. That's the family name. My family name is Bay. Some of your family name is Kim. Some of your family name is Park. When a person gets baptized, they receive God's family name. Here's the question. What is the family name of God? What is the family name of God? We read it here in verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. The family name of God is beloved. It's beloved, right? Some of you are Kim, some of you are Lee. The family name of God is beloved. You guys know back in the olden days that people's families' names was also an indication of the family business. So, for example, if a person had a last name, Baker, chances are their family was in the business of baking bread. If a person's last name was Shoemaker, they were in the family business of making shoes. If a person's last name was Smith, yes, Blacksmith. God's family name is Beloved. That means God's primary business, his main focus, his main occupation, his main purpose of living, and what he does to make a living is simply to love. That is what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all about. That's their main occupation, their main vocation, their main priority, the main thing that they're about. Where they are just loving on each other, making each other each other's beloved. Yeah, and it's in that context that the identity of each person emerges, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is the belovedness of the triune Godhead where the personhood of each identified person of the Trinity emerges, right? And that is the same state of belovedness that God invites every person to receive when they get baptized. When you get baptized, you are identified by your primary identity as what? Someone who is loved and beloved by God. That is who you are. Not your desires, not your capabilities, not what other important people say about you, not the things that you possess. Who you fundamentally are, your primary, ultimate identity, is someone who is beloved by God, period. And this identity dictates and determines how you live your life. In fact, this is something that we do even our own family names. Case in point, every now and then, my oldest boy, my beloved Judah right, will sometimes behave in a way that's out of character to the kind of person that I want him to be. And one of the ways that I tell him that I am not happy with him is when I call him by his full name. I'll say, Judah Justice Bay, come here. When I just say, hey, Judah, come here, he doesn't think twice. When I add the family name, Judah Bay, come here, he stops, looks around. 
Yes, Daddy. Right? What am I communicating to him by calling him by the family name? Other, other than that he's probably going to get a whooping or he's getting in trouble. Right? He's first and foremost learning of his identity. Right? He's recognizing that he is my son and that I love him. And that my love for him shapes his identity that determines how he should behave and how he should not behave, right? It all comes back to identity, right? Who he is, fundamentally loved by the Father, okay? That is what Jesus is showing us when he gets baptized by John the Baptist. He is showing all of us Christians what our fundamental identity is. We are God's beloved, And that identity is the thing that dictates and determines who we are, and not just who we are, what we do, how we feel, how we think, how we act, how we make money, how we befriend people, how we spend our recreational time, what we do when no one is watching. All of that is dictated by our fundamental foundational identity as children of God, deeply loved by him. In fact, it is that identity that helps us to evaluate and judge our desires, whether they're legit or not. Our identity as being beloved by God determines how we should view our capabilities, whether we should take credit for it or give glory to God. Our identity as being beloved by God helps us to receive people's praises from us, even important people, in its proper proportion. Being beloved by God helps us to see how we should view our possessions and not view our possessions. It is our identity as God's beloved that helps establish our true identity as we live in this world that is so lost and has no idea who they are and where they're going and what they're to do with their lives. If you want to know the qualifications that you, Christian, must meet, if you want to do any ministry to God personally, this is where the buck stops. This is where you begin, and this is the only place that you go from. You must first recognize and receive the identity that God says, this is who you are. You are my beloved. You are my beloved, right? You're not what you do for me. You're not what you're capable of doing through your works in my name. You're not the things that you achieve and build up in my name. You are my beloved, period. That's all you are. And so here's my question to you, NCF. Who are you? If I had to venture a guess... Why many of you are so sad, so stressed, so angry, so depressed, so bored, is because you have not gotten this answer right or you've forgotten the right answer. May I suggest to you that it's time to repeat the answer that you already know. You are God's beloved. Say that to yourself. Pray that to God to give you that conviction. And constantly encourage each other with that reminder. You are God's beloved. It is only in that firm foundational identity that you'll be able to be who God calls you to be and who the people around you need you to be, to be a blessing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we think about more about who we are, Father, we are so guilty of forgetting the truth to that answer. Father, forgive us for we let our desires, we let our possessions, we let important people, we let our capabilities lead us astray with false answers that lead us into nothing but frustration, anger, boredom, uh, discontent. Lord, we pray that as we start off this new year, that we would begin where we should have always started and never left from, that we are always and forever your beloved because of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us always seek to remember uh, who we are in the son, 
so that we can live out the purposes in which you call us to live out so that in spite of whatever the enemy throws at us, in spite of all the ways the world tries to deceive us, in spite of all the ways that our flesh tries to overwhelm us, let us stand on the firm foundation of our true identity. We are your beloved and we will always be. Let that be our primary business. Let that be our main occupation for that is what you're about, our great God. We ask that you would hear us now and answer this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.